Welcome to Limitless, where we highlight diverse stories from people with various backgrounds through casual conversations. Before we begin, note that these stories do not represent everyone from a single group. Rather, it is only one piece of the whole picture. On today's episode, we have guest Whitney Knoxley. Whitney is a podcast host and diversity, equity, and inclusion DEI consultant based in the United States. Whitney currently hosts a show called The Impostrix Podcast, which challenges imposter syndrome narratives and validates leader of color working within white dominant career spaces and also navigating white supremacy. If you want to check that out, we also have that linked in our description box. In our conversation with Whitney today, we talk about two things. First of all, on racial capitalism, systemic racism, and imposter syndrome in the workplace and how that affects mental health. And second of all, Whitney's personal experiences and work in DEI. Please give it a listen. I promise you it's an episode full of insight and learning. Before we begin, we would also like to welcome and give a huge shout out to our new host, Trilazia. Trilazia also co-hosted this episode today. Super warm welcome to her, and without further ado, let's get into today's episode. First of all, thank you so much for being here. Once again, thank you so much for being here. Um, We're super, super happy to have you on and super thankful that um, you're here with us today and to have such an important conversation. We're just really, really, really thankful. So thank you so much. Um, before we begin, could you introduce yourself and some um, your work to our listeners? Yes, thank you for having me. My name is Whitney Knox Lee. I am an attorney, a mediator. I am a DEI consultant and trainer, and then I'm the host of Impostrix Podcast. Um, which is a show that validates professionals of color navigating imposter syndrome narratives, imposter syndrome narratives, and racial toxicity. And I throw that the narratives in there because one of the things that I've been talking a lot about on the podcast is my how my um, understanding of imposter syndrome has evolved. Um, and for people of color in particular, I, I really just think imposter syndrome is um, made up. I mean, I think that we experience self-doubt, but I think that imposter syndrome itself is a result of uh, navigating white supremacy and white dominant systems um, and then comparing ourselves to what is expected or what is what it takes to succeed in these types of systems. So I know we'll get into that a little bit more later, but um, the show is about imposter syndrome and um, professionalism as a person of color. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, we'll definitely go into that a little more deeply as we move on. But um, something that while I was listening to your um, podcast earlier this morning on the kind of imposter syndrome, something that really resonated with me was the fact that when you mentioned that imposter syndrome kind of has many different layers and um, it's a very complex and deep thing to understand. Um, just before we begin, could you do you have a personal experience or um, moment where imposter where you felt like imposter syndrome has influenced you or um, you feel like has influenced someone you know in workspaces? Yeah, I mean, I I still deal with it. I've dealt with it all the time. Um, and so let me just kind of back up so that we all know what what we're talking about. We're talking about imposter syndrome. And it's this phenomenon of feeling like an intellectual fraud or feeling fake, um, feeling like maybe you somehow 
achieved whatever the goal is, um, but that that was a mistake. And imposter syndrome was coined in the 1980s by two psychologists here in Atlanta who were studying um, white, high-achieving women. And what they found was that there is some, um, how can I say this? Some of why we experience imposter syndrome may have to do with our childhood upbringing and our home of origin. And some of it may have to do with just general lack of self-confidence. What I and others who are much deeper in the studies of imposter syndrome and psychology and everything have been, you know, kicking around is this idea of whether our environment is creating imposter syndrome or imposter phenomenon, or whether it's this internal malady, because right now it's really perceived as something that is a personal affliction, um, an issue that like I have with self-esteem type of, of situation. And as I mentioned, the evolution, as I've come to understand imposter phenomenon through my podcast is realizing that oftentimes when I think I'm feeling imposter syndrome, so when I think that I'm a fraud, when I think that I shouldn't be in the space, one of a couple of things is actually happening. One, I have self-doubt because I'm growing into a new space. I'm learning new things and I feel insecure about that, about what I know, or like, like I'm stretching my, my muscles maybe for facilitation or for, you know, whatever the, the new skill is. And I feel some anxiety, some nervousness, totally normal. I might call that imposter syndrome, even though that's not imposter syndrome, that's just me feeling nervous. Um, what also might be happening is I might be in a space that was literally not made for me to be there. And I might be the only person who looks like me who's there. I might be the only woman who's there. I might be the only black person who's there or a person with darker skin. I might be the only person with short natural hair who's there. And because I'm not seeing anybody else who looks like me or I'm not perceiving that anybody else in that space has similar experiences or perspective as me, I may then start to feel like an imposter. And when I use it in that sense, I'm talking more of like a, a non-belonging. Um, but I think oftentimes when we think about that second scenario, I'll, I'll talk for myself. When I think about that second scenario, I'm not, instead of just saying, okay, I'm really by myself here. Like I'm really not in a space with other people who look like me or other people from my background. I take it to the intellectual. I take a cue for my own self that like, I must not be smart enough to be here um, because that is why I feel this way. And that's not at all the case. One is we are trying new things and we feel self-doubt because we're trying new things. Totally, that's, who wouldn't? You know, two is I feel like an imposter because I literally don't belong. I'm not seeing anybody else here who looks like me um, and I feel out of place. 
And the the actual phenomenon of imposter syndrome itself is I'm smart, I know all of these things, but even and and my intellectual my intellectual capacity is a match for this space, but despite feeling that way, I feel like my intellectual capacity is not a match for this space. Mm -hmm. I feel like I am fraudulent in my intellectual capacity. I've done all of this research for 10 years on this one specific subject, yet when I enter this room, I feel like that 10 years of research doesn't mean anything, or I must have gotten something wrong in my initial thesis on year one, and so because I got that one thing wrong, now everything is wrong. And it's just kind of like that anxiety, that spiral that we can sometimes go down. And so I've experienced all all of these, with the latter being like the actual imposter phenomenon that I think Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes were really talking about. Um, and I experienced, I've experienced that when I've gone into courtrooms as someone who has done all the things that are required of me to be a lawyer and who has had years of experience practicing law and representing people in and out of court, there are still times where I, as I'm preparing for a hearing, I feel like I'm just not smart enough to know this. Um, or I'm just not smart enough to get this or to to draw the conclusions or to figure out how to phrase an argument so that the judge will draw the conclusion that I want them to draw. Um, and so, yes, that happens. But what happens more frequently is this other thing of seeing, feeling like I'm alone, of feeling like I don't belong, of um, doing something new and feeling really nervous about doing that new thing. And so I think for me, it's become increasingly important for me to differentiate between when I'm actually feeling imposter syndrome or imposter phenomenon and when I'm not. And um, going back to race and going back to white dominance and white supremacy, I really think that when I'm comparing myself to what I think is expected, whether that's you know, it doesn't really matter how I'm getting that information about what is expected. But when I'm comparing myself to what's expected, I'm always comparing myself to a white dominant culture, which is not a culture that celebrates me or that embraces me or that wants my success as a black woman. And so I think that's where my thoughts around imposter syndrome being, you know, a reflection of white dominance really comes into play is that many times when I feel like an imposter it's because I'm comparing myself to the space as it's supposed to look when the space is run by white dominance and I don't fit into that narrative. That's very interesting. I'm sure many of us can relate to um, feeling the imposter syndrome in many different cases influenced by different factors or um, in many different works, workplaces. Uh, why do you think this is an important conversation to have and what are the implications of imposter syndrome in um, maybe like workspaces or just education systems, anything? I think it's important to have the conversations because people 
aren't alone in their experiences. As people of color, as a person of color, I have experienced many times of being gaslit, which is where I have a reality and somebody outside of my reality tells me that my reality isn't true to the point of now I'm questioning whether or not my reality is true. Um, and it can be somebody telling me that it's not true. It can be somebody showing me that it's not true. It can be somebody continuing just going throughout their day, acting as if nothing had happened. Um, and I think that that type of interaction, that type of communication around my existence is really damaging and creates trauma and um, can be a trigger for some of us. And I think that it thrives in isolation. And so having conversations about imposter syndrome, having conversations about racial dynamics in the workplace are extremely important, if not just for the fact of acknowledging that it's not just me, like I'm not crazy, it's not me. This is happening to many of us, I would venture to say all of us, and we experience it differently, we may react differently, but that doesn't take away from the fact that it is a regular course of our existence and our experience in professional and academic and many other spaces, in athletic and sporting spaces and athletic spaces, um, in church environments, religious environments. Like it, the experience happens. And when we think that we're alone in the experience, I think that's when we start to question ourselves and really live in the anxiety and the self-doubt and the, the mental health related issues, the physical health related issues that come along with a poor sense of self-esteem and low self-concept. I think it's so important for us to know that this is a system working against us because I think we are all inherently holding power that what we need to do is tap into it. And so power meaning we all have a value system. We all have a voice. We all um, can choose to have ownership over our labor or working towards having ownership over our labor working towards having ownership over our decision-making process and how we show up in specific spaces. And if we don't think that we have power, if we don't think that our voice matters, then we are not going to have space or autonomy or time or skills to do any of these things for ourselves. And the revolution starts within. Yeah. As I, far as you had asked, yeah, you had asked a second question, sorry. Um, what are the implications of imposter syndrome? Okay, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I just talked about some of that. Mm -hmm. But the mm -hmm. other thing that I've been researching a bit is productivity. Mm -hmm. And specifically when relating to work, this idea that imposter syndrome stops us from doing things that we might otherwise do if we did not feel like we were imposters. And so just taking a moment to think about all the times in life that maybe we decided not to do something because we felt like we were imposters, whether that's like actual imposters, like intellectual fraud imposters, or whether it was imposters like non-belonging imposters. How many times has that happened 
within the last month, within the last year, where we did not um, take advantage of an opportunity that was, that may have been for us, or where we procrastinated because we were living in fear over our ability. And what did that procrastination cause us in terms of mental health, in terms of the actual work product, in terms of maybe relationship with friends and family or coworkers or bosses? So imposter syndrome, when we're living in internalized self-doubt, can have a variety of implications having to do with our health, but also our productivity and our relationships with other people. And our ultimately, I think our our success as we would define that success and our um, ability to continue to move forward in our power. I think this is also why I really like admire the work that you do and with your podcast as well. Like when I was listening to the episode earlier this morning, I was there was also one episode that was talking about like compensation and like having um, you know, people of color having to overcompensate and also, um, you know, sh- overshow your worth and your opinion. And um, that actually caused me to think about something else. How do you think that, um, what, what do you think causes this imposter syndrome? Do you believe that, you know, systemic racism has a role in this? Do you believe, what what are some causes that do you think lead people of color to um, feel like they are, are imposters or a fraud? I think that one, it's not just people of color. And I know you're not saying that, but I think that it's important to acknowledge that uh, 80%, up to 80% of the population uh, experiences imposter syndrome at one point of their life. And so it's not just people of color, but I do think that the systems that we operate within create that I you know I'm not a scientist I'm not a psychologist so I will defer to Clance and Imes and everybody else who's um, studying this on a um, you know peer-reviewed type of way and I I'm sure that things like our familial upbringing and our home of origin and our culture has a lot to do with it my concern is us internalizing what we're experiencing as our own kind of mental dis-ease. And I don't think that it it has to be that. And, and that's where I say, yes, I think it's our systems. I think it's our society. I think it's the expectations that are placed on us. I think it's how we're socialized. I think it is, for me, as a Black attorney, it had a lot to do, you know, professionally when I was feeling imposter syndrome professionally, it had a lot to do with the internal conflict that I felt of being a black person working within the law and of feeling as though this system was one that was actively meant to, it was meant to encapture, to recapture formerly enslaved people. That is what our police that is the purpose of our police force um, when when the police were created. And the law, the legal system, is meant to protect the, the ruling class. And the ruling class here in the United States is white people. 
and whiteness. And so it is really difficult for me kind of on the emotional level, but also on the psychological level of being an agent of that system, knowing that that system hasn't changed. That system is doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing when it's incarcerating more people of color and more black people than any other group of people. When it's not holding white people accountable for, or as accountable or to the same level of um, scrutiny that it holds black people to, or that it holds Latinx people to, or other communities. So I think that it's really, it was really difficult for me to hold that space and to hold that conflict without knowing how to negotiate those two things. Um, because I could always do something great for an individual client, but on a systemic level, I wasn't creating change within the system. And in fact, the our availability to be creative about how we change the system was so limited because of how deeply rooted racism and racialization is within our criminal legal system and like legal system period, not even just criminal. So um, I forgot the question. What was the question? Do you, um, well, you kind of already answered this question already, but it was basically, do you think, um, what do you think kind of causes this imposter syndrome, mm -hmm. even just yeah. like in general? Yeah, so for me, it was that space that I was in and navigating that conflict um, created imposter syndrome for me. I do think self-care is a big one. Like if we have not, if we aren't confident in who we are, if we don't get our validation from within and are relying on validation externally, I imagine we're very, we're much more susceptible to imposter syndrome and to feeling like a fraud. Because at the end of the day, like I have to be, if I'm confident in myself, then I don't have to care about whatever other people think. Um, ex well, unless, unless it affects me getting paid today, then, then I have to care. But like, just on the kind of emotional level, like I don't, I don't have to care if, if I'm getting my validation from within. Being able to identify the causes and the effects of imposter syndrome and how um, your workspace environment could like trigger imposter syndrome and make you feel more, more susceptible to it. Um, what do you think are important changes that just the legal system or like workspaces or just people themselves in terms of mindset could um, enforce in order to combat imposter syndrome or any other um, effects that are based on it? Um, I think that we can start addressing imposter syndrome like we would address well, let me take that back. I, I recently wrote an article on imposter syndrome and using DEI initiatives to, to help with imposter syndrome. And so the idea that um, increasing representation in the workplace or in the, the profession in the field and allowing people to feel a greater sense of belonging and representation within their field 
may help. Um, equity. So ensuring that people are treated not equally, but people are given equal opportunity. And what it means to have an equal opportunity is that sometimes other types of accommodations might be offered to me as someone who has less access to opportunity than would be given to somebody that has more access to opportunity. So that our, when compared, our access to that opportunity is equal. I think that type of thing can help alleviate some of the pressure that we might experience when we are experiencing imposter syndrome in the work environment. And I think what I mean by that is when we are experiencing imposter syndrome because of outside issues, outside forces, outside pressures and, and systems that are telling us we need to fit into this box and when we don't, then we're, we are imposters. I think equity helps us to be able to have the background that is being sought, for example, by employers. So I might feel imposter syndrome, for example. If I'm hired into a law firm or into a space where most people in that space have gone to an Ivy League school, but I have not gone to an Ivy League school. And equity, the role that equity may have is so that not necessarily me, the person that's already in the position, but the next generation of attorneys who are maybe having more equitable access to Ivy League schools um, are able to, you know, go through those programs and then get that education and go into, you know, whatever their next role is. Or what would also be equity is breaking down some of these um, streams of employing people. So what I mean by that, like, because I've worked at these type of law firms where the law firms only get people from specific places. So there's like a recruitment stream, if you will. And breaking that down, like why? Why is it that we are only hiring people from these Ivy League schools? What do they have that everybody else doesn't have? And do we actually need that thing? And like in our job descriptions, when we say must have A, B, and C, do we actually need A, B, and C for these people to, to do the job? Or are we just trying to make ourselves look better? Are we just trying to like live in this place of prestige. And so that's why we're hiring these people. And so equity, I think, on a systemic level can help with imposter syndrome to kind of break down some of that barriers. And then inclusion is the other part of DEI. Um, and inclusion initiatives can look like thinking, like being affirmative about planning for people to be involved and included in the workspace or in the community and not simply just having the numbers, not having the representation of people, but actually engaging those people in the workplace, giving them power to do things in the workplace, deputizing their authority. So if they're on a committee that normally has to go through so many hoops to be able to make a decision, instead of continuing with these hoops, giving them the authority to then make a decision and have the agency actually follow that decision. Those types of things are um, 
initiatives that can cause more inclusion. And I think the more that we are able to not only feel as though we have power, but feel that our power is respected and feel um, that it's celebrated, I think those things can alleviate some of the imposter syndrome that folks of color in particular are experiencing. Something you just said really, really resonated me and with me. And I know we're running out of time here. We might have to hop back on. But um, something that you said earlier, which is that kind of this idea of tokenism and just having repre like representation just for the sake of representation and not actually, you know, doing anything on a deeper level or on a or on a systemic level. I was just like, it, it, what, well, what I'm trying to say is I have had this conversation with a friend just a few days ago. And I, we were talking about how um, in a couple of years back, there was this institution that I was a part of. And it was basically that this institution would post, like, this is very surface level, but they would post just like Black people on Instagram. And they would like do all these things. But inherently, they never actually did anything to promote, um, you know, Black voices or people of color's like voices or opinions or anything like that. And they would just, you know, post it just for the sake of posting it and having that representation on a surface level so that was something that I was kind of thinking about um like when you when you said that and I think that also kind of ties you to the idea of racial racial capitalism which you were um kind of touching on earlier um and I go moving on to that topic how do you think that um how do you define racial capitalism and how do you see that manifesting in your life okay so you were asking about racial capitalism and um, I, so for me, racial, not for me, racial capitalism. Uh-oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. One second. I'm clicking on things and that's making my boxes disappear. Okay. Sorry. So racial capitalism is this reality of society commodifying people based on their racial identity and reducing people, humans, to things that can be bought and sold. Um, and it's exploitation. Like I think to, I've been, I've been thinking, actually I was thinking about this today around racial capitalism and what about when people want to sell or want their, whatever, their likeness commodified. So like black models or Asian models or whatever. Um, so I think to that stream of thought, I remind myself of that racial capitalism is systemic itself. So it's we're not necessarily talking about a single incident or a single maybe model or a single football player that is being, you know, commodified because they're a person of color, but of the system. And so the earliest system you know, that I think of in my history in the United States is that system of slavery, of bringing African people to the Americas to work and creating a whole class of people based on their Blackness. And of course, this happens in other places. Um, it's not unique to the United States. But the actions of literally having slave markets and purchasing people and 
identifying people as property. And then the recognition and acknowledgement that these people are the people that built the United States, are the people that have kind of brought with them or created culture under oppression. And it's that culture that permeates the United States now. It's our hip hop and R&B and music. It's our style of dress and dance. And it is our bodies on football fields today as you know we're getting ready for the Super Bowl. It's our body on the basketball courts. And thinking about particularly with sports and entertainment, how, what the breakdown is with consumership of things like football and things like basketball, that the funnel, so I get, I'm sorry, I get really twisted up because every time I say something, something else comes to mind, but the, the funnel for me of when a black child is born, they're cute for a second, then they're a threat, and then they need to be good at something. And that something needs to be something that will be profitable for white people, for whiteness, for the economy. So entertainment and sports. And as long as they stay in the entertainment or sports lane, they're relatively okay. Scholarships, you can get scholarships, you can go and um, you know make a lot of money for your family, for your community. You presumably like sports or entertainment. And so maybe you're having a fun time and that's that's fine. And that is the pathway that many Black people are like, are pushed into in our childhood years. I was somebody that I played sports growing up. Sports are great. I have no problems with sports. I also played musical instruments. And for my family, that was something for us to do to keep us out of trouble. And I think for a lot of families, you know, that's how it starts. But we also, in our communities as parents, because I'm a parent now, it's like, let me find the thing that my child is good at. So then I can exploit that thing or not exploit. So I can build that thing to make it a monetizable skill. Um, because as now a black parent, it's also very apparent to me that that is a way for, for black people to succeed and also for black people to survive and not get killed. And so going back to racial capitalism, in the United States, we are built on a system of racial capitalism because we are built on slavery. And because slavery in the United States was a racialized system, it was not a class system. It was not like poor people are slaves, non-poor people are not slaves. Like certainly slaves were poor, enslaved people were poor, but that didn't, in fact, indentured, indentured servitude was the quote slavery before slavery happened. And indentured servants were white people, were Europeans. At the time, you know, they weren't using white people because it was all the different kinds of Europeans. When the slave trade um, came to the Americas, a new class system was built that recognized race and created race so that the ruling class could differentiate between the wealthy white people 
the poor white people who would become the overseers of enslaved people and then enslaved Africans. And today, I think we see racial capitalism when we think about our labor and industry. And when we think about people who are working these essential jobs, but who are getting paid very little. Um, and acknowledging that vast amounts of people of color are living in poverty, working these essential jobs. And we are totally fine exploiting that labor, even though we need this labor for, for the wheels to continue turning. And so there's that on, on the one level. And then there's, you know, entertainment and sports on the other, on the other side of things. So that was a very long, windy, convoluted way of explaining racial capitalism. But to me, it's very um, complex. But at the end of the day, it comes down to extracting social and economic value from the racial identities of people and specifically of Black people. I think uh, this issue has a long and uh, like a long history, and it's been um, a very significant part of the American society and economy. And now it's been, um, I guess, modified in a way to suit uh, the current industry and the current environment in a way that it could be, um, I guess, disguised in ways, and people might not even be able to recognize that as racial capitalism. So what aspects of the industry or just the government um, policy do you think we should address in order to battle uh, racial capitalism? One thing that I haven't yet talked about that is the first thing that came to mind with this question is our system of, I don't even want to call it employment, but employment of incarcerated people. So we know that jails and prisons in the United States are disproportionately full of Black people. And people in jails and prisons can have jobs. They're called details. These details pay cents per hour. And it's jobs like everything from janitorial tasks within the facility to landscaping, jobs outside either on the physical grounds of the facility or like um, on highways you might see people picking up trash on the highways that's a detail um and also most recently it's come out in alabama because several lawsuits have been filed in alabama um lawsuits based on slavery like slave labor which is that companies like mcdonald's are employing incarcerated people to work for their corporations and paying them pennies. I interviewed somebody um, a while back who said when he was in prison out on the West Coast in Oregon, he made $78 a month on his detail. And that was one of the highest paying details that was available in that prison. And he was a black man. And so when I think of modern and, and so slave labor in prisons is not new by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm thinking about this because one it's, it's, you know, there are losses happening right now in Alabama 
And so more and more people are becoming aware of this. Um, but two, the general American public benefits from the current system of slave labor that is incorporated within our criminal legal system. And we don't necessarily know it. So tasks, other tasks that we might benefit from that incarcerated people do um, or have done are things like creating license plates, um, things like monitoring traffic cameras, things like creating clothing and working in um, warehouses, working in manufacturing plants. And now we know also working in McDonald's and you know other places. And it reminds me of, of COVID times when people were needing to leave their house to make money uh, to be able to sustain you know, their families. And they're leaving their house and literally at the time risking their lives to like bag groceries. And these people who are bagging groceries are paid, I don't know, $7.25, I think is the federal minimum wage. So maybe $10 if they're lucky, 15 if they live in Seattle. But that still is not going far since it's Seattle. So this is what I think of when I think about racial capitalism today. It's that we want stuff done in our society. We want things. And we are willing to remove people from jail and prison, get them to do the labor, and we are unwilling to pay them. And we are unwilling to even protect them from, um, you know, safety hazards. I've represented people who may have spilled, you know, laundry chemicals on themselves and had chemical burns because they were not provided with any type of protective gear. We think about nurses and people in grocery stores during COVID. And we all agree, everybody agrees that they want to be able to get groceries. And thinking about, or, or that they want to be able to access healthcare. And the cost is humans. Why is it that I get to be paid at, in my profession as an attorney, you know, six figures if I want to? And people that are risking their lives to bag my groceries in August of 2020 are getting paid $10 an hour. I think, I think, yeah, I, I, I totally resonate with what you just said. I think it's just like, it's been, it's real, really like almost exploitation and exploited process that this is, you know, based off. And I think this also reminds me of like, when you said, um, you know, people working these jobs, it, well, I think this kind of go back, goes back to the topic of like slavery, but I was reading this article a while ago, which is just like, um, that black people and, you know, people who were enslaved while were building these institutions and these um like even like Ivy League schools when you when you mentioned that before even Ivy League schools people were like black people were building them but they were weren't getting paid or weren't getting anything out of it but instead now there's a system regarding 
you know, um, just education in general, where like, where like these institutions are so like closed off and so um, this sort of thing. So I just, yeah, that that was really what resonated with me as as well. Now moving on to you, you mentioned way back long ago that you were <laughs> a um, um, diversity, equity, inclusion consultant and um, consultant. I was just wondering, are there any challenges or things you've observed in organizations while while they're striving to create more, you know, inclusive or equitable workplaces? Do you think, what are some things that you have observed um, during that process is what I'm curious about? Yeah, I mean, look, to put it in lay folks terms, companies aren't willing to walk the walk. And I think that's that's what it comes down to because walking the walk means things like putting money behind initiatives, putting space, putting time behind initiatives, not literally setting initiatives up to fail. So, you know, getting new leadership at an organization and then expecting for that leader to be able to turn the ship, to write the ship in like a couple of months is not realistic and it's a setup. And on that point, one of the things, one of the articles that I read recently was the talking about the reality that when black women are brought to lead organizations, it's because it's to write the ship. And so it's like we're not wanted until something needs to be fixed. And then like bring in the black woman, have them fix the thing. And now either they fixed it and it's great, but like we don't really need you anymore. Or they haven't fixed it and then they get caught in this, well, but you're the black woman, weren't you supposed to do X, Y, and Z? And you've you've failed at doing this. And it's like, it can be a double-edged sword, but it can also be a really emotionally exhausting environment to be in because of that expectation. Um, but anyway, so walking the walk is one of them. Buy-in is another. I, you know, DEI, especially after George Floyd's uh, murder, is performative to many. And because it's performative, many of us have been in environments where it's been performative and many of us are feeling jaded in anything regarding DEI. And not necessarily, I'm not even talking about like anti-woke, like Republicans in Florida. Like I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just, yes, we want diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging and access and all of these things. But when you tell me that I have to do another training, I roll my eyes and I'm like, Ugh, okay, but what is that actually going to do? And so I think that's, you know, what we're up against too, is people really not necessarily believing that they will see change and that they will see something different happen after an initiative is put into place. And so I think as a consultant, my role is to help set expectations but also to ask the hard questions, to really challenge the people that I'm working with. Nothing's gonna change if all I'm doing is coming in and telling you what microaggression means. What will, what can create change though, is if I am working with you on a long-term basis for you know six months, a year, two years, if I'm working with you on your strategic planning to help infuse DEI initiatives and principles and values into your mission, into your statement, into your funding, into your um, gift giving campaigns, into your community involvement. Um, 
you know, if I am providing hands-on workshops and like accessible for the staff, for the leadership to ask their questions, for coaching, for mediation and conflict management, because there will be conflict. Um, so I, I really encourage people that if they are working with DEI practitioners right now, you know, at this point, I think we really need to be beyond training. Not that training is not good. Like all of my stuff still includes training, but it's training plus. It's never just training. Because, I mean, we can intellectually get something, but have no idea how to implement. And I think we need to be able to provide, as, as consultants, we need to be able to provide support in implementing the thing. I think a lot of what you've uh, talked about in terms of racial capitalism, imposter syndrome, and um, the importance of incorporating diversity um, into uh, corporations is something that um, has been mentioned in history or like, it, it seems like a problem that has already been addressed since we've put these initiatives in place and people might view it as as long as you meet these the bare minimum like standards you've already um, surpassed or like accomplished it and like the issue has been solved despite how um, how um, it's still a very um, I guess prevalent issue that has been already like that's been like that's now a part of um, various um, aspects of society so is this what in particular has inspired you to start your podcast and like the themes that you discuss in your podcast personally? It really was a result of me coming to a head with that conflict, that internal conflict that I was telling you about regarding being a black person and practicing law. It was less to do about the actual like job that I had and more to do around the fact that I felt that I needed to do something that was unapologetically black and that was unapologetically in my power. And I, in fact, I recently stumbled across an old, a year old journal that I got a year ago this month and my first journal entry in that journal and my only, I'm not a journaler. I like to collect these journals and I tell myself I'm gonna journal, but then I never do. So all of my journals have like two entries in them. So this particular journal only had one entry, but that entry was from like, I don't know, I think February 24th of 2022. And it was, I am exhausted. I need to do something unapologetically black. And I think that that will bring me healing. And the next month, you know, is when I started having ideas around a podcast um, I was listening to Financial Feminist, which is a great podcast around money matters from a feminist lens. And I was like, well, if she can teach about money, then I can teach about, you know, just our experience and imposter syndrome, because that was something I was feeling really afflicted by. Um, so that's kind of how it started. I think as I've, as I've talked to people more and more for the show, and offline, I'm learning truly how impacted we are by imposter syndrome and truly how we need as people of color, as women of color, 
and as black women specifically need spaces where we can talk about not only imposter syndrome, but not belonging and the racial toxicity. I mean, we've seen it most recently in academia um, with Dr. Claudine Gay and then shoot, I forget her name, Candia, Dr. Candia Bailey, who unfortunately committed suicide. Um, it's rough out there for black women and rough is an understatement. It's literally life and death. Some of the experience that we're having that leads us to turn inward, to turn the hate, the aggression, the betrayal, the minimization, the gaslighting inward and do something like take our own life is that's that's happening and it's happening i think more than anybody wants to admit more than anybody wants to know and so that was you know all of these things happening over this last year have inspired me to do impostrix podcast but also have shown me that it's needed that me doing this podcast and having these conversations and encouraging these conversations is needed. And I love the podcast platform itself because although the conversations are for people of color and in terms of empowerment and validation, we all have so much to learn. White people have a lot to learn, but so do I about experiences of Asian people, experiences of Asian Americans or experiences of indigenous folks or experiences of Mexican immigrants to the United States. Like, I don't know, because I'm not in that, I, I'm not in that body. And one of the things that I've learned is that our experiences can be so different, but can also be so similar and that it's worth it to take the time to learn those, like to learn those things about our colleagues, to learn about how it's similar and how it's different from our colleagues to actually like stop and sit and have a conversation. Um, because in having those conversations, I think is how we heal and is how we, and I, when I say, I think it's how it, we heal. What I mean is that I think finding commonality is healing and being less alone and being able to share with somebody about what I've experienced without being gaslit is healing in and of itself. Totally agree with what you just said. I think one thing that you just mentioned is that sometimes people, I feel like this issue is really, people don't realize the significance of it and the actual experiences of the real life experiences of people. And when you said, you know, it's literally life or death for some people, that's really the case. And I think even if you were to talk about, you know, microaggressions, which is like, I feel like sometimes even not just micro, they're like just aggressions. And it's just like people are like, just really, it causes long-term impact on people and it causes these sort of things. And it's really a really severe issue. And it's not just a micro issue that like, you know, somebody came in today and like talked about your appearance, but it's a uh, system and it's, um, you know, implicit bias. And it's all, all of these things that are, that add up to um, influence people's feelings in the workplace or opinions in the workplace or sense of sense of worth in the workplace as well. So I think that's why we have these these conversations and that's why I kind of also really admire the work that you do on your podcast. So moving forward, do you 
have any you know visions for you know the next year or what you hope to accomplish with your podcast or any of your work yes I do I have lots of visions for this next year so um I have I've left my job as a civil rights attorney and am full-time in consulting which is something that I was doing more as a side hustle um over the past six or seven years um and so I've made that my full-time thing because I'm really passionate about and I enjoy having these conversations as like weird as that is I enjoy having these conversations and helping people work through and navigate through some of these processes um so that's one change that's and I, I hope to grow that business but also I hope to provide I plan to provide like processing spaces for people of color who are navigating imposter syndrome or racial toxicity within their workplace and um, who are engaging with my shows. And so I don't have a start date yet. Maybe next month. I'm not sure. Um, but anyway, I want to have monthly, basically like convenings, monthly like times where we can just come together in a Zoom room and there will be a topic and we are just sharing on that topic. And getting to know one another, meeting each other, supporting each other. And I want to see that grow into more of a day-to-day -day community for people who don't have like a sister circle, for people that don't have that tight, close-knit community of colleagues or friends who can relate. I want to be able to provide that like texting platform, like where I can just text somebody and say, you would not believe what this person just said to me. And be and that person be able to find support and community like instantaneously. Yeah. So thank you so much for that and being here with us today. I'll definitely link all of your um podcasts and resources as well in um the the description and also on Instagram as well. So people can check that out if they're interested in um your work. And yeah, I think. We'll wrap it up for today. Um, one final question I have for you. Um, do you have any um, resources that you can kind of direct people to or if you have any um, advice for people who are also navigating um, workplace toxicity or racial toxicity? Do you have any resources or advice that you would give to these people? So many. I mean, there are so many resources out there, which is great. I think... Um... So I definitely, I encourage people to listen to Impostrix podcast. I have a newsletter that goes out bi-weekly that people can sign up for on my website, www.impostrixpodcast.com. And in that newsletter, I include several resources dealing with race or imposter syndrome and one resource um, that is essentially education or advocacy around uh, freedom for Palestinians and anti-genocide um, resource, essentially. Uh, so that's one. Also, race, what is it? Raceequitytools.com is my favorite. It's my go-to. Um, they are basically a library of race equity-related resources. They have everything from if you want to read about language, and just like definitions to if you want help implementing an initiative, here are some steps that you can take. And they compile articles written by people around the world. 
and categorize those articles based on the subject matter. And so I really love that. Um, and I think I'll just leave it for those two because I could r really just tell you tons and tons, but that's overwhelming. So I would say that um, definitely if you're someone listening to this and can relate to what we're talking about and want to engage with me more, I encourage you to reach out on Instagram at Imposterix Podcast or on LinkedIn if you're there. Um, my name is Whitney Knox Lee. I do, like I said, love having these conversations with people and I'm available for um, coaching and support. Thank you so much. Um, those definitely resources to check out. And we'll also link that in our description. And also we'll put your Instagram as well in the description and, and on our Instagram. So people can definitely make sure to check that out and not miss that. Um, so yeah, to wrap it up, thank you so much for coming on today. This was a really, really thank insightful um, episode personally, just for me. And um, I'm sure a lot of people can take and relate to what you've just said a lot so we really appreciate you coming on thank you so much for having this conversation with us yes thank you thank you so much for having me i'm always grateful for the opportunity mm -hmm.